This is Counterculture with Marie Busky. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio. You're with Reality Check Radio. I am Marie, and my first guest this morning is a sheep and beef farmer from the, and a former Gisborne District Councillor and the 2023 Nuffield Farming Scholar, or a 2023 Nuffield Farming Scholar, Kerry Worsnop. Good morning. Good morning. Nice How to be here. I'm really well, thank you. For our listeners, explain a little bit more about who you are and where you are, and then we're going to dive off into a direction that I think everyone is going to find really interesting. Okay, uh, so beginning with, I suppose, I, I certainly define myself as a farmer. I've been farming since I left school. Um, came over to the beautiful East Coast uh, as a, a nanny originally, ended up shepherding. Absolutely uh, loved the way of life, loved the people. Uh, met my husband and um, we went out uh, for ourselves into our own business a few years ago now and um, kind of been grafting away at it ever since. Um, somewhere along the line, I, um, I started studying and out of that came a bunch of um, different avenues and opportunities. Environmental consulting was something I did for a bit. Um, Federated Farmers Environmental Portfolio, which led me into council. So, yeah, in a, in a nutshell, um, got my head, my finger in a few different pies. And um, I think, yeah, something I'm really passionate about is the rural community and uh, the aspects that I've been fortunate enough to be a, a beneficiary of. So, you know, I'm, I'm pretty keen to um, talk to anyone I, I can, I suppose, and um, support of that. Mm. Now, I spoke to Graham Williams about six weeks ago, and for anyone that hasn't caught up with that interview, it, you can go and search it up on realitycheck.radio, go to replays, go to my show, and look, um, you can find the replay there with Graham Williams. Graham and I spoke about the forestation of key prime farmland on the East Coast, and then we discussed the difference between carbon farming and uh, farming for timber. I did a little bit of research before catching up with you, and I have to admit, I think the new duty four-letter word is IKEA. <laughs> yeah, well, um, put it this way, I'm not buying too many of their products if I can. Hui Rua and Martinui, which is what Graham and I spoke about, those are two massive East Coast farms. Wisp Hill, Wallingford, Stone Ridge, Tapapa, four farms near Gore. I think Wisp Hill is one here locally in Hawke's Bay where I am that's just been bought. How can this be happening, Kerry? What is the motivation for all of this? Why are all these prime farms being planted it's, it's really simple, actually. Um, money. <laughs> the, the motivator for these companies is they want to sell their products without having the guilt of being an emitter. Right? They, want to, they want to have a, a net zero or, a, in, the, in IKEA's case, climate positive tag stuck to their products so that consumers don't feel as though um, you know, they necessarily need to reduce their consumption and they're, you know, they're quite happy to buy these products. So it's very much about image. It's about um, portraying a sense that we're doing the right thing. And, of course, consumers don't typically look very far beneath the surface with regards to, you know, what is actually happening. Um, and we are, unfortunately, other than, uh, I think, Kazakhstan, the only country in the world that allows 100% carbon offsets using a forestation. So we are an outlier globally. It's only natural that these massive companies search the globe and find trees like ours and go, oh, look at this. 
we're going to take advantage of it. And along the way, they can make a shit ton of money. Graham highlighted, and I said to Graham, why are they then in places like Huiru and Mata Nui, why are they planting pines? Why are they not planting long-term sustainable kauri forests and things like that or putting things back into natives? I mean, surely that gives them the green credibility but again, as you said it's follow the money they're planting mm-hmm. the, the cheapest fastest, stock cheapest fastest and and i think the thing that probably um makes this the most grating for for many of us who who made a noise about that sale and tried to stop it was that if you genuinely wanted wood products as ikea claims in its submission to the overseas investment office then you would buy a standing forest, wouldn't you? Of which New Zealand has any number currently for sale. Mm. This company is not buying standing forests. It's buying farmland to put into forests because that's what's eligible for the carbon credits and that's what's eligible for the um, the NZ units that it can then register to claim. Um, the Climate Change Commission's draft advice on the second um, emissions reductions plan basically talks about the cost to an emitter being between $25 and $50 per unit to offset using trees. Anything over that is income for them. Just remember the carbon price was up close to $90 not that long ago. These guys were making money. So when you say these guys, you mean the government were making money? No, no, investors. Investors. Yep, yep. The government simply um, the administration function of it. Although, don't get me wrong, government makes makes money out of the ETS too, but um, largely to redistribute into whatever it deems to be the um, worthy causes that it wants to put that money towards. What is the motivation for those currently in government to do this? To, to be honest, and it's probably where I, I differ from a, a few people, some some people genuinely believe that there was malicious intent to kind of get rid of farming. Um, I've had enough to do with politicians to know that they, they typically, there's probably an element of that in some factions, but broadly speaking, over over you know the majority of people who, who end up in parliament, that's, that's not really their deliberate intent. What this is more a feature of is the fact that when we, pulled together the Net Zero Carbon Act and when the emissions trading scheme was formed, there was huge pressure from the public to do something, right? Because everyone wants climate change to be solved and everybody's saying, look, you're not doing enough, you're not doing enough. And then you've got a three-year election cycle where politicians are going, we need to send a message. We need to provide a signal that we're doing the right thing. So we crammed massive pieces of work through knowing that there are really big potential issues in them. I mean, you, if you were to have the time and potentially um, the patience to trawl through all of the submissions to uh, both the ETS and the Net Zero Carbon Bill, you would find a screed of them saying exactly what would happen if they went through as they were. Exactly what those submissions said would happen is what has happened. And that it's turned into a massive, um, basically, opportunity to game the carbon market, make a hell of a lot of money, make very rich people even richer, at the expense of normal New Zealanders. Because this is a domestic system, right? The money that pays these guys, it comes from you and me. You pay a fuel tax, you pay all sorts of other things via the things that you buy. And 
we don't bring in money with this scheme. We simply haul it out of everyday New Zealanders and we pay it to these guys to plant some trees where they then go and get to make themselves look good in foreign countries who, you know, trusting that their consumers are never going to know how they're doing it. You, you know, you don't have to see too much more of the footage of what occurred in, Cy- in the Cyclone Gabriel to realise what, you know, planting more pine trees on erosion-prone hills could look like for us. Um, but, you know, they're trusting that, by and large, their consumers don't see it and their consumers won't care. And we've got a, a political system that is paralysed because they, they've set up a scheme that is now a minefield any which way those politicians move. They've... It- they've of it's, it's, it's an absolute mess. It is an absolute mess, and it's optics, isn't it? This yep. is all about optics, how things appear. Uh, mm. It's like, I mean, what you've just described, in my head, I was thinking about the whole electric car push mm. and how the there's no sort of thought into what mining has to go on to source the minerals to create the batteries, to create the cars. And it's not just the cars, it's any electronic um, environment and what goes on in countries throughout Asia and Central Africa in order for that to happen and the raping of the environment for that. And here is IKEA coming into this country, literally cherry-picking some of the best Mm. land yeah, yeah. In order to make Scandinavians and Americans um, feel really good when they buy their piece of flat pack furniture, greenwashing is at its absolute zenith, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, typically, like, I read, you know, obviously a lot on this stuff. And what we allow in this country is much more typical of what occurs to third world countries, where the, the country desperately needs money of these big companies. So they're prepared to trade off their resources and their communities to do it, to get it, right? And usually that's because they have a lot of pressure to supply things like, you know, more basic necessities that these countries already can't afford. We're not a third world country, right? Why are we behaving like one? Why are we letting massive big companies with more than enough money to actually implement real change if they wanted to, to instead come and essentially... uh, mine our communities you know mine our productive landscapes for carbon which um you know there are probably no people on the coast in the vicinity of these farms who support this purchase why were their voices not heard i've got two theories on this theory one is that the reason they're doing it is because they want to look good globally and when I say they I'm talking about the government and whoever's in the government at the time I'm sure they want to be seated at the big boys table and be looking good amongst Mm. all those major nations trading nations is one and two in the select committee process you were saying with the select committee process I've gotten to a point now that why do we bother having them does this government pay any attention whatsoever to anything in submission and selectivity? Well, my experience would suggest no. Um, So I took a petition to Parliament in, was it 2019, I think, Um, when this was all first kicking off, right? The writing was on the wall for all of us, right? I think you probably, the only bit that you'll remember about this is Shane Jones standing up and calling people rednecks, right? But so there there were a handful of us up and down the country who are reading these cabinet papers, reading this material that's coming out of government going, holy crap, 
guess, look at this. This is going to create an absolute snowball of land use change and nobody knows about it. They're not talking about it. They keep calling it scaremongering. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. And so we pulled together this petition of, uh, I can't remember how many, 10,000, 11,000 signatures. A lot, right, for a rural-based petition. Um, Delivered to the steps of parliament. <laughs> the only way I got a response to that petition was by putting in an official information act request. And what I got in the official information act request was just screeds and screeds of information that uh, well, it wasn't even information really. It was just a rebuttal by the Ministry uh, for Primary Industries to say, well, yes, all these things might be true, but we need to do something. You know, in essence, that's what it said. And, and I think what we've got is this desire to do something and the absence of really knowing what you're doing creates an enormous mess, a mess that will persist long beyond my own time and into the time of my children and their children. Mm. And, you know, if I think, God, if we can do anything right now, you can you can be as terrified of climate change as you like. If you are so uh, paralysed by the fact that you've wrecked your community and you've wrecked your economy, it won't necessarily matter how hot the climate is. Your children are not going to be well-placed to either adapt or to mitigate anything. You know, we, we actually need to make deliberate choices with good information, not um, a whole bunch of well-meaning choices based on feelings. You know, mm. that's very, very different. And that is where the ideology intersects with real life. In critical social justice, they divide it, uh, everybody into different groups. And within those different groups, they assign a power ratio. So you're either an oppressor or you're oppressed. And mm -hmm. James Lindsay, he's actually a mathematician by training, very fervent on this, that it's a form of Marxism. And it's like, if you look at the ideology in terms of a from a scientific perspective, and you have a genus, and then you have a species. So like he describes it, cats, all cats come from the same feline uh, genus. So you have all the different types of cats from tigers to domestic moggies. And then you have the different species of cat that fall out from under that. And the ideology is very, very much the same. So under the whole umbrella of uh, Marxist theory, you then have critical social justice, you have critical race theory, you have queer theory, you have climate ideology also falls out of this because everything is not based on reality. It's based on perceived reality. It's mm. based on how you, as you said, how you feel, not what the actual facts are. And when you're trying to deal in facts as you are at a select committee level and in governance, the rebuttal is, is yes, we know that this is the case, but. Yeah, and or the, the issue that I really, took with that process was all well and good if your plans show that you want to convert something somewhere between 1.2 and 4 million hectares, right? All well and good. That's fine. Let's let's uh, let's say, okay, that's what the government wants to do. For God's sake, you, are, you have a duty of care to tell the people that that's what you're actually planning to do. You know, instead, we had this, and for a very long time, this papering over what the actual intentions of the ETS were, that's being really laid bare now by the Climate Change Commission, saying actually your ETS does pretty much nothing in terms of reducing emissions. All it does is drive afforestation. You guys need to go back and change it very substantially. Now, that advice is not new advice. They provided that advice at their last um, report into what the government should be up to. 
the, the problem I think we find ourselves with uh, when you when you're attempting to um, send signals and send messages and appear to be doing the right thing and the in the absence of really really um, robust conversations with the public is that you lead the public down a merry little road they don't necessarily understand that all the things that you've promised are actually not deliverable or they're deliverable at huge cost so when those huge costs start to become apparent the public get upset right well that's if they're made aware of it though well what what happens is there's only so long that you can perpetuate something that's um, more of an image than than reality, right? You, you, I think probably some of the symptoms of this were apparent in the policy bonfire, right? There were a whole bunch of things that um, the I'll call it the Art Dune government because it there has been a delineation between the Hipkins government and the Art Dune government because he's burnt a whole bunch of things that she spent a whole lot of time building. Um, but the rea- reality is Art Dune didn't really have anywhere left to move. If mm. she if she persisted with a whole bunch of things that were on the table, one hell of a mess was going to um, follow because the way that they were structured was actually, in, in many cases, well-meaning, but actually probably going to result in worse outcomes. Um, and and to go backwards, I mean, you know, as a politician, that that's the worst thing you can possibly do, or certainly, I think, in her mind. Um, and so we, we actually needed a change of the guard in order to burn a whole bunch of stuff. But really the reason that stuff was burnt was not because necessarily I think that the Labour Party changed its ideology. It's because the public was pushing back really, really hard on some things that were starting to become evident, even if they weren't part of the narrative. So give right. us an example of that. Um, Would I walking think, back on three waters be part of that? Yep, yep, definitely. I, to be honest, there's, there's loads of examples. Um, I mean, I'll stick to farming because obviously you're talking to me in a, mm. a farm test. Probably um, the the afforestation uh, area is one where the government probably was reasonably comfortable to just keep letting forestry offsets do all our emissions reductions work, right? Now, what I think um, I think land use change is is a concept. Most people, if you read the information, you say, "Oh, well, look." Forestry that you know still produces income. Da 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 da. da. Um, in actual fact, carbon farming doesn't produce income for. New- We're exporting money, right? But the the government had got itself into a position where it had promised a whole bunch of people that they could make these enormous sums of money. You had big iwi organisations and other corporates having gone into this area in a big way. Now, when they go to change it, it costs a lot of people a lot of money. And a lot of people lose, um, you know, they, they, they lose confidence in the system. That, that um, U-turn is something that they're going to be very, very reluctant to do. They're probably going to use an election to mask it. Uh, and, and probably they're hoping that the aftermath of the election, that it's actually just not their problem. And you quite often see that with election cycles, mm. where, where it's used as an excuse to run the, I don't know, the air out of something that was already a problem. Three Waters is probably another example where it's going to get mishmashed in the election cycle and reinvented as something else out the other side of it. Um, when you consider the things that people really took issue with, especially councils, our council, we we didn't take issue with the definition of, you know, water being really important. 
we didn't take issue with the idea that it needed massive investment. We took issue in the main with the fact that the government's numbers were so far wrong that it wasn't possible for us to have confidence that signing up to this thing was going to result in our communities affording their water. You know, it's not physically possible for $2 billion to be spent in the Gisborne region using debt and also for that population to be able to afford that debt. Mm. It's simply not possible. And Gisborne is probably still, I just remember when I was a homeowner in Gisborne, it had one of the highest levels of rates in the country. Mm. It was. We, I'm assuming that's not changed. No, we, we don't have enough people. We've got about 50-odd mm. thousand people and, and 800,000 hectares of land, right? We're, we're huge. We've got one of the biggest roading networks in the country. Um, spreading all of those costs over people who are widely dispersed, especially with water, is massively expensive. Uh, it's very unlikely that, I mean, the entire strategy for Three Waters is largely just we're going to amalgamate these things, we're going to use the fact that you can rate to generate revenue as essentially the ballast that provides confidence to the lenders to lend. We're going to lend as much as we possibly can. And then we're going to extract the money to service those debts from this population. We can't argue, right? That's a recipe for water poverty. It's a recipe for people who can't currently meet their electricity bills to also not be able to meet their water bills. And councils balked at that and went, hang on, hang on. How do our communities say we can't afford this? At what point, you know, does it become apparent that they can't afford it? Or will the horse have bolted and it won't matter that they can't afford it? These are all the questions that councils had. Um, the government, I, I, I don't know. So I where's the local government minister on all of this? Isn't that, our, isn't that our friend Nanaya? No, she's... Cha- uh, no, she, she was. Was, yeah. No, he is now Kieran McNulty. Right. Uh, and I think he's got a... Um, he's got a I, I understand from someone from the Wire Rapper the other day that his nickname is Noddy. Um, Apparently well, he likes to spend lots of time in meetings just nodding his head. Oh, well, if he likes meetings, he's, he's probably something else to get. But, um, but essentially, I, I don't think it... it I mean, it, it probably doesn't matter too much, is my experience of politics anyway, who the minister is. Not the consultants and the work that's gone on behind the background. I mean, Kieran McAnulty, I can guarantee you right now, he is not an expert in water. No. Nanaya Manuta was not an expert in water, right? Well, they water are, acquisition potentially, but not necessarily in water, no. So they get provided a whole swag of advice from consultants from all over the place, from you know their ministerial advisors, et cetera. They themselves are probably not that well placed to make decisions about the quality or the calibre of that advice. Um, from mm. what I've seen of the advice that Nanaya Mahuta was given, there were some pretty big issues with some of it. She wouldn't have known that if she had no one to tell her that. Uh, she really, really was very sceptical of, of anyone outside mm. of, you know, the, the government system highlighting those issues. We were largely said to have been politically motivated because we wanted to be re-elected at the next local government elections. That was the reason why we were all saying no. I don't know about you, but as far as I'm concerned, probably one of the most overused term um, words in the last few years has been the word expert. In my mind, the way that experts work is changing. Um, I know when I when I studied, right, you would get heavily penalised if you 
provided a 200-page report for something that could have been 20 pages, okay? You, you actually encouraged, get to the point, tell us what the information that we need, and then move on. That's That's not what our experts do these days. They provide piles and piles of pointless data. Half of it is waffle. Um, you know, and the, the point in doing that is mostly just like there is intangible value placed on this waffle. I'm not sure why. I think it's a it's a cultural thing, right? It's, it's mm. definitely risen very, very dramatically in the last few years. Um, actually, even just reading the Climate Change Commission's report, oh, my God, I know what they're trying to say, right? I can tell you the main points that they want to make. They did not need 240 pages to do it or however many pages it is. Half of it is recycling the same garbage that 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 no one necessarily gets any information from, but to make sure that nobody's offended and that nobody feels left out and that nobody, you know, can say, oh, but you forgot about this perspective. Um, you know, we, we've, we've, we've got a lot lost, I think, Speaking of reports, as I've got my hot little hand that came out uh, last week was the Disinformation Project's report. Uh, the Disinformation Project is a particular hobby horse of ours here at Asia, and they put out a report. Uh, this one was only, I mean, for them it was actually quite light, to be fair. It was only 42 pages long. Yeah, uh, that's <laughs> That's not too bad. Yeah, no, I only lost about an hour or so of my time on this one. But I'm going to read you something because I think you will actually, this is in the intro, in the introduction, I believe. To be honest, this actually sums up exactly what you're talking about, but also where we're at. The Disinformation Project now studies a diverse and dynamic disinformation ecosystem preoccupied with multiple and shifting ideological concerns, including, but not limited to, misogyny and reactionary ideas about the role of women, anti-LGBTQI+, the rejection of science, including climate change and fresh water, anti-government, anti-establishment, anti-Māori, anti-co-governance and anti-immigration rhetoric. This is the significant cause and effect here in Aotearoa, New Zealand and is located within a system of global trends, themes, narratives, actors, including state or state-adjacent actors that drives destabilisation of social cohesion. Lovely. Lovely. So in other words, if you disagree with the government... Mm, yeah, I mean, at least they're calling it ideology, right? That's something because I it guess that, <laughs> the the reality is we we're given. Uh, and to be honest, I don't I don't think we can necessarily point the finger at the government uh, for this. I'll be honest. People elect governments, right? Mm. If we as society value uh, narratives and you know talking about the way things sound and the way things feel more than we value what the actual material outcomes are for people, mm. then we're going to get this. Yeah, it's know? identity get politics versus yeah policy based politics. You mentioned before in regards to the information that people actually get. I mean, you are somebody that's diving into the information. One of the things, so this is the actual report, for example, from the Disinformation Project. I also downloaded their media pack. And the media pack was essentially, these are the key points that we want you to talk about. No why on those points, no examples on those points, no anything. It literally was a four-page media propaganda sheet. And it's the same, I'm sure, in farming and climate. 
Yeah, it, well, it, it's the same pretty much in any kind of communications, full stop. You see actually companies do it now. You see, you know, boards very tightly manage the way that the communications are, are released. In the, it, I think it's, it's interesting, um, the preoccupation with perceptions. Is it, oh, oh, my gosh, I just remembered. Okay, so with this Nuffield thing, I get to look at all these amazing different people doing incredible things all over the world and try and learn stuff from them. And there's this one woman whose podcast I listened to, and she was she was uh, looking into um, the the functioning of governance in China. And what she was specifically looking at is th- there are, there is relatively little power provided to local government in China. It's, it's mostly held, obviously, by the Chinese Communist Party. And at the same time, there are huge pressures from the population for these local governments to do things, often things they can't do, often things they're not resourced to do. And so what happens and what emerges in response to this is what she calls performative governance, right? It's not governance that's performing, it's governance that's putting on a performance. And what you see is mirrored in the way that, actually, to be honest, most Western countries are responding to people's demands for change, is instead of materially shifting the foundations of things in order to produce a different outcome, which is obviously very hard to do in complex systems, very hard to do when it costs money, very hard to do when you're asking people to do things, they put on a performance, they use words, they use um, releases. It's where perceptions matter. Perceptions only really matter if what you're materially doing isn't necessarily lining up with what you think should be happening. And, you know, you don't need a performance if Mm. you're absolutely rock solid and sound in what you're doing, right? You can, I I guess it comes back to the old, um, (laughs) the old adage, right? Actions speak louder than words. Mm. If you've got no actions, you need words. Yeah, well, right. and the common uh, the Russians used to say, um, y- "You pretend to play us, and we'll pretend to work." <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah. that's that's kind of where we're at, and in, in, in particular with um, with entities, governments included, who who want to be perceived as achieving something that potentially even they know they're not achieving. Hmm. So does this all of this fall under Heiwaka Anoa or is that something completely different? <laughs> or am I opening Pandora's box now? That's like another hour all by itself. So give us the cliff notes on that because, there. Are, see, this is one of the things that I get really frustrated for, for most everyday Kiwis, right? There mm. are all these things that are thrown out and about, a lot of them with Māori names, and, and there's no meaning mm. behind them. So, for example, Three Waters was something that wasn't coined by the government. It got coined mm. by the people because that's how they understood it. And mm. I feel that Heiwakanoa is another one of those things. It's something that's a name that's put out there. Most mm. Kiwis may have actually heard it on the radio or potentially read it briefly in a news article, but they don't actually know what it is. For those who don't know, Heiwaka Ikenoa means all in, this, all in the waka together, which has since become the most ironic name in the history of naming anything Um, because very clearly having all of the agricultural industry in one waka um, with the delivery of the proposals, the emissions pricing proposals has very much meant that uh, in particular the sheep and beef industry is barely hanging off the side of the waka if it's actually connected to it at all. Um, 
because the implications in particular for the sheep and beef industry are really, really massive. And um, there's a conflict, there's a number of conflicts that still exist within that plan, not, not least of which being the complexity of it and the cost of it. Um, so this is a plan for the rural sector to yep. manage and control their emissions, is that? Well, control is probably a kind way of putting it. No, it's okay. slack emissions, right? So our net zero carbon bill has an interesting um, target. It's got a target for uh, carbon dioxide to be net zero in, net for, uh, in 2050, right? Net means that you can use offsets to get there. It means that in theory, you could do absolutely nothing as long as you plant enough trees. Methane, on the other hand, has a gross emissions reduction target, meaning it doesn't matter how many trees we have, we have to have materially reduced methane by 10% by 2030 and by, and the, this is a this is an interesting one for you, by 24 to 47% by 2050. Now, I know it's weird. It, the reason it's weird is because it's cut and pasted from um, the IPCC. It's, it's literally not even our own target. It's a case of the people responsible for making a target didn't know what to do, so they cut and paste from something international, plonked it into our domestic legislation and said, we'll worry about the rest of it later. So the agricultural sector is, is facing these what are frankly very, very brutal targets. So just again for non-farmers, what would constitute a methane generation on a sheep and beef farm, for argument's sake? Yeah. So when animals eat um, grass, obviously grass is growing using CO2 and sunlight, photosynthesis, right? The, um, the plant takes up CO2, it uses it to make energy, which provides its cellular growth, etc. The animals then eat that cell, you know, the, the, the many cells that this make This is grass. the farting thing. They, yep, so they digest that grass. Yeah. While digesting that grass, there are little bacteria that live in their animal's stomach called, I think it's methanogens, something like that. Those little bacteria produce methane. And that is um, primarily burped, actually, not farted. But, <laughs> you know, all same thing. Hmm. Um, that methane ends up in the atmosphere. It has a, a greenhouse gas uh, potential that is higher than CO2. It's, it does a better job of trapping heat. And then, so it's in the atmosphere for about 10 to 12 years. It's then broken down by a molecular process uh, to return back to CO2, which then goes back into the grass. It's a cycle, essentially. How has this been then measured? How mm. on earth do you measure how much <laughs> a cow farts and belches and how much <laughs> methane it spits out? Actually, New Zealand's probably got more research on this stuff than just about anybody else. We've got the Greenhouse Gas Research um, Institute, Association. Oh, I can't remember what it's called. Um, we also have um, AgriSearch and a number of other entities that have been researching the hell out of this for, for a couple of decades now. Um, the, the relationship between what comes out of an animal is very, very closely related to what goes into it. Right, and we know a lot about what goes into animals because we're an agricultural nation. This is our bread and butter. We've been doing this for 150 years. We know almost everything about growing animals, and so it didn't take a hell of a lot to work out that you know they eat basically a kilogram of dry matter and they produce roughly a kilogram of CH4. So they use it as a rule of thumb. And the greenhouse gas inventory, which is how we report internationally, 
they're not too bothered about whether or not your measurements on farm, which we don't actually do, no one does, um, are accurate. They don't care about that. What they care about is the integrity of the system. So if the errors are consistent, that's fine. So So all they're worried about is how it looks, not what it does. Yeah, pretty much. Well, that, that's how we report. We're, we're worried about consistency at the way that we report. We're worried about um, trends. I think that the biggest issue for farmers is that because this is a biological process and one kilogram in, in terms of feed, equals one kilogram of methane out, um, and it's a cycle, the, the conversation that's missing is that if you reduce that cycle currently with the tools that we have, Essentially, you're asking farming to stop farming in the pastoral context with animals. There aren't other options that make anywhere near the scale of emissions reductions that are in our legislation currently. So, you know how I talked earlier about the the, the scale of planting that was very much in the frame in the government, but certainly wasn't part of the wider narrative publicly? It's very much the same with farming. Most of New Zealand, especially urban New Zealand, have no idea how much the reduction in New Zealand's farming sector would need to be in order to meet the targets as they stand now. Essentially, in spite of the fact that the primary sector is something like 80% of what the, uh, the country you know, sells to the world, we're talking about making massive, massive dent in that. Uh, the, the hope, and again, this is one of those things where we'll just put the legislation in place and then we're going to hope. <laughs> the hope is that someone will come up with something that breaks the connection between what grass goes in and the methane that comes out, you know, whether it's a vaccine or some other thing. And the hope is that that thing will arrive and farmers will be able to afford it and we will tax them so much that they have to buy it and they have to use it. This is all beginning to sound very familiar, Kerry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Isn't it? Well, the problem we've got with this picture is that the thing that you might be taxed into having to use doesn't exist yet, mm-hmm. right? If it did exist, yeah. the cost that you would need to apply to me as a farmer in order for it to be cost effective for me to deploy this technology would at the moment end my business. Mm. Or it would enable me to become, you know, 30%. This is where, from from my perspective, coming from a cultural perspective, I'm Mm. looking at this and I'm thinking to myself, okay, if we do have this methane cycle and there is these emissions out there, what is the actual global impact of those emissions that we have from this country and New Zealand farmers? And last time I read it was something like 0.3 or 0.4 of a percent of all global emissions is coming from New Zealand. So we are looking at destroying... For all of New Zealand, right? For agriculture, it's obviously uh, less than that because... Of the emissions that, um, this is actually, to be honest, you're getting into quite a technical area here. There's there's a lot said in the in the rural space around the way that we measure methane. It's not a it's not a conversation that you hear a lot in um, outside of agriculture because a it's very technical, um, b there's not a lot of appetite for it. But because methane emissions are a cycle and it's mm. largely currently a stable cycle it doesn't actually add to warming. 
So while all of the CO2 emissions that are pumped out every year are cumulative, meaning that you lay down another layer on top of last year's layer on top of the year before that's layer, with methane, provided that you are holding the same amount of livestock broadly, you are simply replacing emissions that broke down last year. Mm. Uh, And that 12-year cycle basically continues. In order to reduce the emissions that the government's talking about, you actually need to reduce the cycle which in warming terms, because you were only holding the line by holding your livestock numbers constant, reducing then creates a decrease in the amount of greenhouse gas molecules that are currently in the atmosphere. That decrease in in real terms, if we were China or something much, much bigger than New Zealand, would have a cooling impact globally. Obviously, we're not China, so it won't have much of an impact. But, but, but the material result of reducing greenhouse gases is a cooling impact. Now, the reason that we plan to have a cooling impact by reducing our methane emissions below our stabilised cycle is so that we can fill that gap with CO2 emissions. <laughs> now, not only are we using trees to offset um, CO2 emissions that we don't really plan on cutting because the, the voting public won't really like it much. Uh, we're going to reduce agriculture to allow CO2 emissions to continue um, pretty much, you know, at, at elevated rates also. The, the removal of animals has essentially the same effect as the planting of trees in that there are fewer GHG emissions in the atmosphere. What I mean, this is not a conversation that you'll hear from the government, even though they'll, they'll they'll talk to you about it privately. It's not something that they want the public talking about, because then it calls into question the fairness of the targets for agriculture. So, well, you know, we broadly speaking, the public believe that the half of the country's emissions that are agriculture, they think that that is adding to temperature, right? When you say to them, actually, it's just holding the temperature where it is already. Um, and if you reduce, then actually you're going below, you know, where the, where the temperature level is now. Um, then, you know, that's a very different conversation with the New Zealand public. Sorry, and what I understand too is that internationally they've reduced that overall emissions target everywhere else except here. Yeah, like the, the targets as they relate to methane internationally, like the IPCC's recommendations, I think it's 6% globally they want methane emissions from agriculture to decrease by. The vast bulk of what they want to be reduced by is, is the stuff that's leaking from leaky gas lines, right? But because we have such a big agricultural sector in this country, we're not like any other Western country, right? Our peers with a similar emissions profile are developing countries. Very few Western countries have as much of the of their profile made up of agriculture. And the primary reason for that is most other countries have a way bigger population. Mm. We have a tiny population. And, <laughs> and lots of animals, yeah. Yeah, so actually you could totally, uh, uh, most other countries, if, you, if you'd looked at um, Britain, for example, um, before they had an enormous population, it probably would have had a pretty similar profile to ours. Mm. So in terms of moving forward, so 14 October is the election, mm. but from this this perspective and a farming perspective, will a change of government actually make any difference? I don't think that it will, to be honest. And the reason I don't think it will is because it doesn't matter what party is is getting, you know, trying to get themselves elected. They all understand that most of the population 
don't necessarily understand. Like this is pretty complex stuff, right? I've I've kind of covered it at high level with you. There's mm. I've, I've used broad figures and round numbers to make it easy. Um, there's more nuance than that, and there's a hell of a lot more technicalities than that. Having that conversation with the public and saying, well, actually, we might just trim that. Um, we might trim that target for agriculture, but what it means is that you're going to have to get out of your car. No one's going to do that. Everyone lives in Auckland. Um, you know, mm. the reality is if you want to be elected, you are much, much better off to continue to lean on a reasonably big chunk of, of the country's emissions that come from a tiny proportion of our population. Like there's, there's I don't know how many farmers, 60,000 or something, not very many, right? They could do without our votes, quite frankly. The missing part in this equation is... If you, if you follow, I guess, the way that our economy is knitted together, urban and rural are not divided. We are basically the economic base of, of the pyramid, so to speak. Anything that happens out in the hinterland flows through even to our biggest cities, and it, it flows through, you know, pretty quickly, to be honest. Hmm. Uh, well, just look at the price of a dozen eggs after... <laughs> the legislation changed there. And, I mean, I have to admit, I went to the supermarket and was aghast. It, there are just yeah. no eggs on the shelf. Yeah, and I mean, that, that's the reality of when, you, of when you make a decision that's based on, on politics rather than on pragmatism, to be honest, there's a massive opportunity and that, the, that the land-based sector provides with regards to, um, you know, all environmental issues, quite frankly. But we're not really addressing these issues as though there is opportunity there. We mm. really only see it as, as a problem, as a cost, as a, you know, as something to um, kind of run roughshod over the people who actually are on the land currently. The people that are on the land are the answers to most of the big problems that we have, you know, in the land-based sector. We've, we've done it before and we can do it again. We can provide solutions, mm. but you're going to get solutions to anything when the people in that sector broadly just feel as though you know a big chunk of, of certainly uh, our governors and in too many people don't want us to be here and I think also too provincially as well you're on the coast I'm in Hawke's Bay and we have gone through these weather events um, I mean two significant weather events you had both Cyclone Hale and Cyclone Gabrielle uh, affecting things in Gisborne particularly on the coast with slash and devastation the Esk Valley here in Pakafai and Awatoto and Bukitapu and Risington and Partoka I could keep going these are places that are struggling mm. to get back on their feet. They are the fruit bowl and the heart of the rural community here. And I think what a lot of townies don't realise, and we're, we're certainly noticing it here in the Bay, I can tell you that right now, when you put that pressure on that farming community, the income is not flowing and those farms aren't profitable and they start retracting in terms of spending. That then has an impact. That flows into town. Yeah, it has an impact into the spending and things that go on into town. Yes, I know a third of people live in, in Auckland. The reality of it is, is the generation for a lot of that wealth outside of Auckland is in these smaller provincial areas. They are really going to start seeing the squeeze. I don't think, I said to Gra um, Graham, I, I don't think I've seen farming in this much of a crisis since the subsidies came off in the early 80s. It is pretty yeah. scary. That, that would be... 
I would say that's pretty accurate. I think the conversations that are being had around farming tables at the moment, you know, they probably have more gravity to them than than what we've seen in decades. And that's because there's this there's this incredible convergence of pressures. So, I mean, it's well well canvassed right, the, the regulatory pressures and, and all that kind of stuff. But what people don't necessarily see is the fact that you've also got interest rate pressures on I mean, every farmer, every farmer I know anyway, has mortgage. Um, you've got enormous pressure coming on um, the cost side of your business. Uh, you look at the inflation that's running just broadly in the economy. Uh, inflation and in agricultural products is running well ahead of that. So it means that, you know, you've you've got, your business is, is actually not in the kind of shape that it was in two or three years ago where you could kind of go, yeah, 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 we're feeling this regulatory pressure, we're feeling kind of the, the noise, but okay, my balance sheet's okay, you know, I can mm. kind of I can focus on my work and I can kind of shed some of that, some of that stuff that's hiding in the back of my brain. Much, much harder to do that when suddenly there's not much, much daylight between what it's costing you to do business and what you're making out of your business. Um, add to that the fact that, quite frankly, uh, along the East Coast, people's people's actual homes and, and businesses, are they're a mess, mm. you know. So the physical work that is required, you know, as so you're going out there not to do the stuff that you actually love, which is kind of growing stuff, you're actually just going out there trying to fix stuff. And and uh, for some people, the, the scale of what is there to be fixed will be another kind of compounding factor. And so if you if you think about how these things kind of all line up, the biggest, the biggest influence on all of that is how you perceive yourself. You know, we're human. Everyone sort of, you know, you like to feel as though you're doing something that's worthwhile. When when the mood is that you're kind of dispensable, and if you go under because you can't meet your emissions tax, well, oh well, so be it. That's that's just natural progression. It's actually not. That that's you know your government has made deliberate decisions to weed out a whole swag of you. And and the way that Hiwaki Kino is framed at the moment, the ones they're trying to weed out are the farms that are on extensive country, the big big sprawly ones that don't have a lot of stock on them. They're considered uh, inefficient. And ironically, those are also the ones that we use to market to the world as being natural and et cetera, et cetera. It is, it is those guys who are going to struggle to pay these taxes. They don't, you know, they're going to kind of get up one morning and face their, their first emissions bill and go, do you know what? I don't feel like you guys want me. I'm, I'm going to bow out. And at the moment, there are really, really willing buyers for those farms. And they're, they're not farmers. They're foresters. Just looking at that list of farms that I read out before, they've cashed up, haven't they? Cashed up and moved on. Yeah. And what what is the mental health like? I mean, you get out amongst a lot of farming communities. You speak to people. I mean, when you were in council, you were talking to farmers. What is the general mood amongst farmers out there right now? I think, to be honest, it depends on how and sort of in touch you are with a lot of what's happening beyond the farm gate. As I said before, for those who really just focus on behind the farm gate, up until fairly recently, they were probably doing okay because they could kind of just ignore it till it happens sort of thing. We call, you know, everyone says, oh, you know, these these farmers with their heads buried in the sand. That's how some of these guys cope. <laughs> but the, the problem is now a lot of these issues are starting to reach in and you can't 
you can't avoid them. What that means for, especially to be honest at the moment, the young farmers, if I think about the people who are the most vulnerable right now, it's our young farmers. It's the guys that that might have tried to buy in, they've taken on a lease or they've taken on a, um, you know, some form of ownership, uh, maybe it's share farming in the dairy industry. In the last few years, they took out a loan that was probably costing them half of what it's costing them now, right? They've really, really stuck their necks out to kind of get a stake in the industry. They will currently be feeling as though they're getting slammed on all fronts and they'll be probably struggling to see where the light is at the end of that tunnel, right? Now, the, the irony of all this is right now, our balance of trade deficit is the widest that it's ever been. I think I read somewhere that we're currently worse than Greece, if you remember rightly, Greece was the cause of the Eurozone crisis a few years ago. So we're in a pretty ugly position in terms of the gap between what we sell the world and what we're still buying from the world. And the answer to that is certainly not for this young blood that we've got at the moment to kind of just give up and, and go back to finding a day job. You know, people with skin in the game are the people who stretch themselves. They're the guys that take out an overdraft. They're the guys that keep their staff working and the contractors going, even when they're making no money, right? Those are the people that keep economies running. We need them to pull through this. Mm. If they don't pull through it, and they won't want to if we don't feel as, you know, if they don't feel as though there's some value in what they do, then, um, frankly, our... our yeah, our country's going to be in an interesting position in a few years from now because while we talk a, a lot about pivoting, <laughs> we're going to, you know, going to become a country that does something else other than agriculture, um, the, the actual data suggests that we are more reliant on agriculture now than we were in the 80s. It's now a bigger proportion of, of what we do. Our biggest manufacturing sector is food and beverage production, you know? Even when you step outside of farming, you're still in a farming supply chain, right? We haven't built these other replacement industries that are just going to suddenly take us off in a different direction. We haven't invested a fraction of the money in anything else that we've invested in the knowledge that we have in the primary sector in this country. I, I don't think probably most people realise that it, it literally took 100 years of investment to get the performance that we currently have now in our primary industries. Um, it'll take another, God, I don't know if it's 100 years, but certainly decades mm. to reinvent something to surpass or, you know, supersede that. Given that we're investing almost nothing in virtually anything at the moment, mm. we near that magnitude. I, I think, you know, if, if you if you want to reject agriculture, you, you need to have an idea about what you're going to do instead. So for those who have listened to this today and they've gone, wow, I've had no idea that any of this is going on, where are some places where they can find good basic resources to actually dig a little deeper into some of the issues that are affecting farmers and or potentially reaching out to organisations that are making some noise in the sector to try and get some change happening at a governance level? Oh, that's quite a hard one. Um the primary sector tends to have, you know, you tend to kind of recycle your own issues throughout your own uh, base of people. So we don't tend to do a lot of outreach, so to speak. Um, a lot of, I actually, I've thought about this before. 
providing the likes of the publications that a lot of our information is disseminated through, it would probably, <laughs> probably be quite hard work mm. for someone who wasn't, you know, uh, familiar with these fields. I think um, media releases from in, in articles that are put out from Federated Farmers usually do a pretty good job of, of um, kind providing of... Providing an overview. Providing an overview, but to be to be honest, there's there's not a lot that will give you without reading a whole bunch of stuff that will take you eons. Um, it's quite hard to get this kind of information. You'll find that there are topical things that kind of um, arrive in the Herald or arrive in the you know the mainstream media, but by and large, there's not somewhere where you can get a comprehensive overview of all of the things that are converging on agriculture right now. That resource doesn't actually exist. Politically too, it's also until they take and hitch the political capital off the environmental ETS-type wagon, Mm. it's going to be more of the same, isn't it? It doesn't matter who you approach. They're going to continue. It's going to be same shit, different day. There's an opportunity, and I, this is one thing because I know um, farming gets very it gets slammed a lot for being like, oh, you just don't want anything, you don't want to do this, you don't want to do that, you just you know in denial. Um, I think the thing that I would say in response to people who feel that that's the message coming out of farming is is that in actual fact we're we're really adaptable. We have to be, you know, we are the most risky business on the face of the earth we literally rely on clouds and sun and things like that that change every day we are not averse to change but we need a solid place to put our feet if you're going to make a step you've got to know that step's not going to sink and far far too much of the stuff that's in place at the moment is a muddy swamp laying in front of us that people are saying oh here go run through that you know the the fundamentals of what we're being asked to move to need you know they really need environmentally socially economically doesn't matter which field you're talking about it needs to be based in something that is pragmatic and that we can do and that out the other side of it we're better off the environment's better off the society's better off we haven't just sent a signal you know articulated some kind of narrative but underneath it all the outcomes still worse you know that that's what we push back against we don't believe in bullshit and i think you'll find that pretty much anywhere you go in the rural community you know, we believe in material change, not just words. On that note, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, Kerry. So many of these issues have been behind the farm gate, but it's now time to get these issues out into the wider public because a problem shared is a problem tabbed, isn't it? And I think we need a greater understanding to actually help protect. Um, as Graham said to me many, many times, they're killing the golden goose, Marie, they're killing the golden goose, and we need to protect that. As this progresses between now and the election, I'm sure we will probably get you back and we can talk about some of these issues because I think these things are going to continue cropping up uh, closer to that election time. So thank you so, so much. That's fine. Well, you're welcome. Anytime. Cheers. You have a, have a good day. This is Counterculture with Marie on Reality Check Radio. More to come. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Radio.